When the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action as practiced by Harvard University, it set off waves, and one of those waves is already washing over federal contracting. With this and a few other matters, we check in with federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And I think a lot of people wondered about affirmative action as practiced in federal contracting, and now there's the first case, and it's not going well for the traditional programs. Tom, what we're talking about here is an article that recently appeared in the Wall Street Journal written by Judge Glock from the Manhattan Institute. And in that article, Glock argues that the Supreme Court's recent decisions in the affirmative action cases considering higher education could also have an impact on the government's contract set-aside programs. Uh, He goes on to cite his arguments where he believes that these programs generally have added cost to government acquisition I'm not here to debate that. We haven't run the numbers. But what he does say is that uh, if you have found a place where you can't use race in college admissions, then you shouldn't really be using race or other socioeconomic factors in awarding government contractors. That could really turn this industry on its ear. And yet we've already seen litigation in this area, uh, a couple of cases that went up maybe 20 years ago to the Supreme Court that dealt with this issue. So there is some precedent here, Tom, uh, where the court has said previously that you can use uh, race and other socioeconomic factors in the award of government contracts if it's tailored to meet specific past incidents of impropriety. Right. And the same article cites a case that happened just a week or two ago in which Judge Clifton Corker struck down minority contracting preferences at the Small Business Administration and the Agriculture Department, citing the same thing the Supreme Court said in its case, that there's no logical endpoint to what they were doing. It just was kind of on its own autopilot. So whether that'll spread or not, hard to say, but it definitely could change 8A programs, set-aside programs, the whole basic 23 24% rule that's been in place in which the contracting community has kind of wrapped itself around now for, for a couple of generations. Right, and we can see where these two divergent policies, Tom, uh, could be on a collision course with each other. On the one hand, we have the established set-aside programs for small businesses really kind of turbocharged by this administration's push to increase the amount of government contracts that go to small minority businesses. On the other hand, we have the judge's decision that you just referenced, as well as previous case law that says you can't do minority contracting everywhere all the time just because you want to do it. It has to be tailored to making up for past wrongdoing. That kind of gets in with what the judge said in the most recent case, which is like, at some point, this has to have an end to it. Uh, If you've remedied past wrongs for a certain period of time, the judge suggests that it's time to maybe do away with these programs. Tom, I think that this is another area where we're going to end up with a case that goes before the Supreme Court that talks about Uh, the legality of being able to set aside government contracts by race or other socioeconomic factors. It gets to that whole equal protection under the law type clause. I think it'd be a really fascinating discussion to get into. 
with uh, the contract bar and people who follow these things in the legal profession. But uh, from my view, as a professional consultant, somebody who's been in this business for 33 years, I think that's where we're going. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, and we'll have to wait and see if there is a case brought. But it sounds like in some of the recent decisions, the court has almost asked for cases in other domains on the same principle on which it just ruled. So we could see a qui tam challenge to the constitutionality of that, which would also turn a lot of long-term tradition on its head. But in the meantime, we've got a more short-term worry, and that is, you know, government shutdown, so to speak, looks kind of likely, definitely more likely as a full year continuing resolution given the division in Congress. So what's your best advice right now for contractors as, golly, it, I mean, it's August already. Tom, it is August. And it, the, my best advice for government contractors is to do as much positive business in the current fiscal year as you possibly can. And understand that the next fiscal year, the one that nominally starts on uh, October 1st, is going to be a little bit bumpy. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the possibility of a government shutdown. And just last week, before Congress left town for its August recess, we had a member of Congress saying publicly, we should not fear a government shutdown. And then he went on to say, Tom, one of the great things uh, about Congress, there are so many divergent viewpoints this congressman said, most of what we do here is bad anyway. So there you have it. Yeah, great. That was uh, Bob Good who said things. a lot of things are bad. Bob Good from Virginia. Yes. Right. Yeah, the good and the bad, and I guess the ugly, you might say. <laughs> and in point of fact, as a practical matter, probably 80% of the government functions continue even when there is a lapse in funding. It's the people that rewrite the FAR, that decide policies, that do this kind of thing are the ones that don't go to work. But so many large sections of the government keep going that the shutdown is less and less fearsome, I think, over the decades. Less and less fearsome, but, you know, to be clear, it's also really expensive. It's not just turning the government off. is not as simple as turning off a light in your office. Uh, if you think about lights, just to continue the analogy in a sports stadium, you have to be very careful about how you turn them off. And then when you turn them back on, it's not like they just go back on instantly. It takes a while for them to get back up to the necessary brightness. That's the same thing with government. And if you're really a fan of reduced costs in government, the best thing you can do is work to not have a government shutdown because it's expensive to have one. It's very disruptive to people's spending, very disruptive to people's ability to plan and while you can say, hey, we shut everything down in order to save a few cents, I'm not sure how many cents you really end up saving if you end up having to restart the entire juggernaut or a substantial part of the juggernaut that is the government market. Right. And just as the government leadership is trying to get people used to the idea of coming back to the office three days a week, right. <laughs> they would be right. home that. again. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is something that uh, our colleague Jason Miller also noted and reported on, and that is when GSA sent out a request for information on a solicitation for Alliant 3 draft RFP, 4,500 questions came in. How are they going to answer all those questions? And these were not auto-generated. I mean, these were quite yeah. individual questions. Right. Uh, I think these are more than double the amount 
of questions that GSA was anticipating uh, when it sent out its second Alliance 3 draft RFP. It indicates that there's a substantial amount of interest in this uh, solicitation, Tom, which isn't at all surprising. Alliant 2 currently underway has been phenomenally popular. I think one of the real questions that GSA is going to have to address and address very quickly is how they're going to deal with small businesses that would like to get either on Alliant 3 or on another set of small business IT, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. You know, we've got uh, Polaris that GSA tried to get out the door and the Court of Federal Claims kind of sent a torpedo through the hull there. Uh, Polaris is back in dry dock being repaired. So either they're going to have to get Polaris out and resuscitated pretty quickly, or they're going to have a, or I'm advocating, Tom, that the GSA strongly consider adding small business subcontracts or small business alternatives, companion contracts to the Alliant 3 unified solicitation. What I think myself and a lot of other people are fearing is that if there is no small business IT vehicle and Alliant 3 is the only game in town right now, that's going to get bids from businesses of all sizes. Tom, we've seen what happens in those cases. Those programs get bound up in web after web of protest with substantial delays. We can't have that happen with Alliant. It's too much of a foundational program. So either GSA has to figure out it's going to add some small business capabilities to that one, just like they did with Oasis Plus, or they're going to have to get busy and get Polaris out of dry dock and back in sea trials. Put it on maneuvers. (laughs) All right. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. 
And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause, and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them re really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. 
You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how 
to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.